Welcome back to today's conference organized by the Open Society European Policy Institute and European Digital Rights Group, EDRI. My name is Jennifer Baker. I am your moderator for this afternoon to try and draw together some of the threads we've spoken about in this morning and look forward to how the AI Act will look with relation to human rights and fundamental freedoms. Our next panel, we are focusing on Fortress Europe, automating Fortress Europe, in other words, AI, artificial intelligence in migration and border control. Once again, this is about disparities of power and where the most vulnerable can be targeted. And instead of using tech for good, we're actually making the most vulnerable even worse off. And we're going to look at ways in which the AI Act might be able to mitigate these problems. Joining me, I am delighted to have Petra Molnar, the Associate Director of the Refugee Lab at Refugee Law Lab at York University's Centre for Refugee Studies. A lawyer and researcher, she specialises in the impacts of migration control technologies on the rights of people on the move. Alina Smith is Deputy Director of PICOM. That's the platform for international cooperation on undocumented migrants. And last but not least, Peter Vitanov is a member of the European Parliament in the S&D, the Socialist and Democrats group, and he is the shadow rapporteur on the AI Act in the LIBA committee. That's the Civil Liberties, Justice and Home Affairs Committee. So very glad to have all three of you with me today. I'm really interested to hear about what sort of work is being done on this specific sector with relation to AI? Because we already know that uh, undocumented migrants face an uphill struggle. And in some cases, one might think, well, documenting them, getting their data, storing it and, and processing it might be a good thing. Um, but that's not always the case. Petra, what have you been looking at? Thank you so much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here for such an important conversation. And I'm really, really glad that we're discussing the impacts of technology at and around the border. Um, I'm a lawyer and an anthropologist, so I look at the lived experiences of people who are crossing borders and seeking asylum um, across a variety of jurisdictions. And most recently, I've been trying to understand the sharpest manifestations of border surveillance on people on the move. I'm based in Greece these days, and I've been tracking and trying to understand this kind of growing ecosystem uh, of these migration management technologies and, and their human rights impacts. And we really are talking about an ecosystem that is increasingly kind of weaponized against people who have a fundamental human right to seek asylum. We're talking about uh, proliferation of automated drone surveillance, different types of projects such as AI lie detectors, uh, more kind of traditional surveillance that we're seeing, and some really, really far-fetched ideas too, such as really violent sound cannons that are being rolled out across different uh, borders. But again, it's, it's this foundational idea that we're seeing people on the move being used as a testing ground for really, really high-risk technology that will then be rolled out in other um, contexts as well. And unfortunately, given the kind of uh, appetite for the development and deployment of AI-type technologies, this is only the beginning. And, and likely in the coming years, we're going to be seeing even more technology in this space. Thank you, Petra. It's, as I'm hearing your terms, that it's, it's almost like a gateway. Um, but Alina, let's uh, let's stick to those those harms that are suffered by the undocumented migrants and refugees. Thank you very much, Jennifer. I think maybe an important place uh, to start is actually. Um, you know, as a backdrop to also what Petra was saying is that one of the basic harms we see is the very premise 
uh, behind the increasing use of technology and AI in the migration context. And that premise is basically about reinforcing the notion of threat or danger. So we need to augment the use of uh, these different tools at our borders and in other contexts that I'll mention in a moment, because we need to counter the, the threat created or caused purportedly by these people, uh, these men and women and children who want to come into to Europe. So that is a harm. And, and what is the harm there? Again, it's reinforcing stigmatization. It's reinforcing the demonization of certain types of people who want to come into Europe, who want to, to reside here. Um, and I think another, this is in addition to kind of the broader harms around um, fundamental rights, uh, some of which Petra was, was mentioning a moment ago. I just, if I can briefly just actually quote the European Commission itself uh, from 12 years ago in a report where they said a single overarching EU information system with multiple purposes will deliver the highest degree of information sharing, but creating such a system would constitute a gross and illegitimate restriction of individuals' right to privacy and data, data protection and pose huge challenges in terms of development and operation. So 12 years ago, the commission was saying, we'd love to have an interconnected unified system, a set of information systems for migration control, but gosh, that would be a terrible thing for fundamental rights. And what we see is that uh, just less than a decade later, uh, in 2019, uh, we have the interoperability regulations creating an interconnected set of migration databases for the joint purposes of tackling irregular migration, but also serious crimes like terrorism. Again, underscoring this idea of threat and danger linked to the very fact of being a foreigner. Um, and maybe if I can just say very concretely, in addition to the harms in the context that we see that Petra was mentioning at our borders, we also see the growing use of technology for immigration control inside our borders. And I would even say inside our communities, we have police in the Netherlands, for example, that on handheld devices, when they stop someone can see at a moment's glance what their address is, what their status is, and communicate that to the immigration authorities immediately. And similarly, in Greece, we see that there are EU-funded initiatives to really strengthen the ability of Greek police to stop people and identify their status, their irregular status, and do an immigration control on the spot. Um, through the use of this type of technology. And we heard even last month at a conference that um, a high-level speaker from the European Commission expressed his enthusiasm, or at least his, his uh, belief in the opportunities and the potential of using surveillance technology for social media monitoring uh, to assist migration preparedness. So this goes far beyond the use of technology at borders and harms uh, as concerning as those are in the context of our borders, into our communities and even into our virtual spaces. Well, thank you. Um, let's turn once again to get the Parliament view on this. Um, tell me, uh, what is the current thinking in the LIBA committee? Oh, it's, thank you first. Uh, I hope you can hear me well. Uh, thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity. Oh, this is an extremely, extremely important topic. Uh, although, as you probably know, the Libre Committee was uh, uh, way after IMCO Committee uh, was uh, part of this whole process, so we, we had less time to, to get organized ourselves. And as you know, we, have sh we share competence with IMCO and Libe. And actually, we are just in the beginning of our debate. But allow me maybe to share some of my concerns because yes the ai act is something extremely important because uh, ai is all around us and it's growing exponentially 
but at, at the same time, I share some concerns when we speak about the usage of AI in, a, uh, in the field of uh, migration and border control. Uh, yeah, so if you allow me, I will just point out briefly some points and then maybe we can speak about them later. Or, uh, first, uh, I'm very, very skeptical uh, on the added value of usage of some techniques, such as polygraphs or tools that detect the emotional state of person. Uh, there is simply not enough scientific evidence uh, uh, that these uh, techniques actually work. They also affect disproportionately vulnerable people. So if you're simply nervous or uh, scared to fly or uh, scared to be questioned at the border or have some neu neurological conditions uh, that affect your involuntary movements, then you will be targeted by such software. So I believe that these unscientific practices relying on the idea that a machine can never be wrong uh, should be directly banned under Article 5. And this is basically the, the view of the EDPB and EDP, uh, uh, EDPS. Uh, maybe on the other hand, uh, strengthening the uh, article number five. Well, right now there is no uh, mention of the harms of practices like predictive policing. This was uh, an issue that we've been discussing in the, in the report uh, of the AI, uh, AI in the um, law enforcement, uh, this, uh, which has uh, demonstrated evidence of disproportionate transgression of the fundamental right to non-discrimination, the presumption of innocent or child rights, we paid huge attention on that one, but I need, uh, I, I believe that it should be also put in here uh, in the AI Act as well. Also, uh, something very um, dangerous, I would say, the proposal pro prohibits social scoring, of course, when performed over a certain period of time or by public authorities or on their behalf. However, private companies such as the social media cloud service providers can also process vast uh, amounts of personal data and conduct social scoring. So. I believe that uh, we should look more into this and the future AI regulation should actually prohibit any any type of social scoring. And this is also uh, agreed and approved by EDPB and uh, EDPS. Uh, also, when we talk about biometrics, because of course it's linked with the, um, with the question here, uh, Article 5 deals with the prohibition of real-time remote biometrics identification systems in publicly accessible spaces. Now, uh, it also leaves the door wide open for exemptions such as, I quote here, prevention of specific substantial and imminent threat to life or physical safety of natural persons or of a terrorist attack. Well, you can imagine such an exception seems quite vague to me and with a lot of possibilities for wide interpret interpretation by all the authorities. And then maybe uh, another loophole, the ex-post use of biometric identification. Uh, which I failed to see how it would be a benefit to citizens, right? If we agree the practice is harmful, then it doesn't matter when it occurs. Uh, judicial oversight over these practices could be postponed in case of urgency, which is again uh, too vague and uh, subject of wide interpretation. And maybe uh, last but not least, uh, the such use of AI involves processing of data and indiscriminative and disproportionate number of data subject for the identification of only a few individuals. Not to mention that this, uh, there does not seem to be enough evidence that this actually works. Uh, but uh, imagine if we have to place millions under su surveillance, breach their rights to privacy and anonymity in the public space only to get one or three uh, suspicious individuals. Is this really uh, worth it? So these are basically 
some of my concerns, of course, I can go on and go on, but I'll be glad to, to, to have more or less a discussion on that. Thank you. Thank you, Peter. And I would remind our audience, of course, you can ask questions of the panelists. Just put them in the chat box and we'll try to get to those uh, before the end of our hour's discussion. Petra, to come back to you, you mentioned these different migration management technologies. Could you break it down for us a little bit more what the specific types are and how they're used in different parts of the EU? Sure, I, I would be happy to. And, and I think the term migration management is an instructive one because, again, it, it illustrates the broader logic that we are talking about, that borders and migration are something to be managed and controlled and, again, kind of reify the, the big power differentials that we're seeing um, at and around the border. Because, again, the, the, the ecosystem in which we're talking about really matters here. We're, for many years now, seeing a sharpening of borders anti-migrant sentiments, a rising xenophobia, and also strangely now, of course, with the invasion of Ukraine, also a lot of solidarity, which once again highlights this kind of differential way that people migrate and experience the border. But when we're talking about migration management technologies, we're talking about a broad class of applications that, as Alina reminds us, are not just about the border, but also what happens before a person might cross a territory and then also afterwards. But for me, what helps is to think about it uh, temporally, you know, perhaps tracing a person's journey as they're moving from their homeland into another place where they want to be. And a lot of issues can occur even before a person crosses a traditional border. So things like social media monitoring, for example, or predictive analytics uh, that are increasingly used both by states and state actors, but also by international organizations to try and use um, big data analytics to uh, forecast where people might be moving after a conflict and where aid might be uh, most uh, useful. But also the concern with predictive analytics, of course, is that it can be co-opted for interdiction measures or pushbacks, which are illegal under international and domestic law. And then at the border, kind of the traditional space where we're seeing a lot of this sharp surveillance and automation occur, you know, we're talking about unpiloted drone technology, thermal cameras, sound cannons, which are, for example, being rolled out at the Greek-Turkey border. We're seeing in the Greek refugee camps a vast array of automated surveillance technologies, including motion detection algorithmic software, and even playing around with a virtual reality. And then all the stuff that happens after you cross the border that Alina was reminding us is, of course, also important to, to talk about. We're seeing an increase of automated decision-making in refugee and immigration applications all sorts of risk profiling, and of course, the conflation between uh, criminal justice and, and immigration enforcement, too. That is something important to, to think about. I mean, this is just a smattering, and, and Petar also talked about one specific example that I think is quite visceral, and that is the use of polygraph-type technologies or, or lie detectors, essentially, which uh, there's a big appetite to introduce them at and around the border. But to me, this particular example of a migration management technology really shows so many of the pitfalls that we need to be discussing. And often this can seem so kind of up in the air and theoretical, but this particular case study is there's something really visceral about it. And I just want to end here. You know, when we're talking about, for example, lie detection, which we know is something that inherently is, is faulty and the traditional lie detectors, you know, that we see on TV and in, in courts, sometimes they're not even admissible in, in jurisdictions and uh, in courts of law. So the fact that we are now um, introducing AI type uh, polygraphic technology in, uh, on the most vulnerable in these most high risk cases is really, really telling. Why are we doing this? What are the priorities? 
because again, migration is seen as something to be managed and controlled and the border is something to be fortified. And these types of discourses is something that we have been seeing for many years in the European Union space. And the Fortress Europe idea is unfortunately strengthening uh, with each coming day as we see more and more technology being used in this space. So again, it's about borders, but it's about management. And again, that kind of broader logic that underpins this just really reinscribes the vast power differentials that we see between the people who are actually migrating and crossing borders and those who are making decisions about them. Thank you. Um, Alanya, um, you mentioned there that the tendency to conflate terrorism with, with non-Europeans and with people coming from the outside and foreigners. This is, one might think this is quite a cultural problem. Um, and we're trying to look at it from a technological point of view. Can the AI Act, um, as it's currently envisaged, actually help solve this problem? And does it do enough to safeguard fundamental rights? Is, uh, are we dealing with the source of the problem or are we dealing with the potential solutions to the problem? I'd like you to drill down a little bit into that about where you think the levers for change might be. So I think the, the, it's important, I think what you've, you've mentioned, uh, to really emphasize that we have technology and then we have the context within which the te technology is applied. Um, and in the migration context, um, it's already a context where, as we've already heard, there are enormous power differentials. What is at stake for people is enormous. Um, and there's already an infrastructure attempting to really control in significant ways people's movements and so on and so forth. And so we have the use of technology to really augment pre-existing efforts to do that kind of deterrence, um, to do uh, various types of risk analysis and so on and so forth. So I think um, technology, uh, the context really matters here. The context really matters here. So does the technology make a difference? Yes. Is the technology fundamentally the problem? Well, the broader context is already one where, where we already see um, uh, there are already important concerns about, about uh, the risk of fundamental rights violations and that actually happening. So what can the AI Act do? I think, first of all, it's very interesting and notable that um, a number of different uses of artificial intelligence in the context of migration and asylum are recognized in Annex 3 of the AI Act as high risk. So what does that mean? High risk to health and to fundamental rights. So this is already a recognition of some of what we've been talking about. Um, so that's important. So I think the AI Act uh, is already important in, in recognizing um, the, the, the potential harms around uh, the uses of technology in the context of migration and asylum. I think at the same time, uh, what does it mean that some of these uses have been identified as high risk? Well, actually what it means is that um, the consequences around that designation are mostly technical. Uh, it mostly have to do with uh, increased transparency and certain types of technical fixes um, in terms of a focus on data and quality. Uh, what it doesn't mean is that they, we actually need to take more care and pay more attention to the impact of the use of those technologies and take any steps to either stop or uh, mitigate a, a harmful impact. So I think the opportunity of the AI Act is not only to designate certain things as high-risk uses, like migration in the migration context, but to actually have consequences for those designations that mean that there has to be an assessment of 
impact of the use of those technologies and measured ways in which the, the impact can be stopped or the harmful impact can be stopped or mitigated. And there also needs to be something that's not there now. In recognition of the impact, there has to be I think an opportunity for personal redress. There has to be personal rights uh, that allow people who are negatively harmed or impacted to actually have some some mechanism for accountability uh, and re redress. So I think that's also really important. Um, and of course, the transparency aspect is critically important because so much of how technology is deployed in the migration context is invisible. It's in migration procedures, as Petra was saying. Uh, it's in risk analysis and assessments. Um, it's in apps being used by different authorities um, to share information and to make decisions in ways that people often don't have any idea about. Um, and so it's extra important, I think, in those contexts for people to understand uh, and to have transparency about how technology is being used in ways that affect decisions that are being made that have enormous implications uh, for their lives. So I think there are really important opportunities with the AI Act. Um, I think um, what's already in there has some promise, but we still need to do work to really strengthen it uh, to, make, uh, to, to make it meaningfully protective. Peter, let me come to you and ask you, we've had an MEP on each of our three previous panels and I've, and I've asked each of them, what is the sort of lobbying like at the moment and, and what sort of positions are you hearing? Maybe not just your own position, but what, what are your colleagues from maybe different groups? What sort of, of, of proposals are they being presented with um, either to water down or to strengthen the AI Act? Well... Of course, it, it depends. I do, really do not want to speculate on that topic. But let, let me tell you, the, the, the main focus of the Libre Committee is how to make that uh, AI act to serve and to protect the fundamental rights. Like the fundamental rights is, the, uh, is our main focus. Of course, the, um, of course uh, maybe IMCO Committee deals with the safety of the product and so on and so forth, but to us, it is really important that all these technologies they should serve, uh, they should serve to the the people, because very often, very often uh, we are presented with this false division that we have to choose between the innovation and fundamental rights, and we cannot that we cannot have both. And the more uh, you go with the one, the, the more you lose with the other. But I really don't think that it is the truth. We must foster innovation that is compatible with fundamental rights. I read something very interesting uh, in the social media because uh, good example, just because cars runs with 250 kilometers per hour, this has not stopped regulations from imposing driving speed limits for uh, reasons of public safety. And in other words, just because some techniques exist and are possible, it doesn't mean that they should be accepted. Uh, and the same goes maybe with some other uh, distinct, false distinction, security versus freedom. I mentioned something in the, in the beginning. Uh, we will not get more security if we rely on completely unscientific and mistaken-prone technologies, nor we would get it by normali uh, normalizing mass surveillance. Humans will always be smarter than the machines, and AI is not a silver bullet. We all know it, that will solve all our security issues and concerns, and suddenly there will be peace all around us. Of course, it's not the case. On the contrary, think about how attempts to identify and classify people 
according to their physical characteristic in particular their faces have a long and troublesome history it was not so long ago when there were serious people and scholars who believed that the size of your skin or the shape of your nose was an indicator on whether you are higher race or smarter or so on and so forth i think uh, that kind of thinking did not bring security uh, uh, to anyone but maybe to wrap it up uh, my, 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 my biggest aim would be to protect the fundamental rights because in this uh, in this um, uh, piece of legislation we see certain loopholes that might affect the fundamental rights and it will be our main goal to try to avoid them thank you well, that's clear thank you um petra let's move on to the question of uh not so much the collection of people's data, but the storage of it, and these huge, massive, large-scale migration databases, the so-called Schengen Information System, for example, uh, they create a threat landscape that, that, you know, that could be, uh, create vulnerabilities. But what are the other issues uh, around that that you find problematic? Yeah, definitely. I mean, the kind of underpinning that uh, we really need to look at when it comes to the datafication of migration or, or even the humanitarian response is, is such an important element to this because increasingly, and this has been happening for many years now, um, there's this turn towards thinking that more data is always better. And the issue with, with these giant databases that are being created now is that a lot of them are going to be or are already interoperable, meaning that data collected for one purpose may be repurposed for a whole other um, type of use case. And we, again, this kind of conflation between migration and criminalization of migration that Alina was reminding us is, is something really to keep in mind. And the more data that we have, the more um, problematic inferences we can make about somebody, because again, the context really matters here. We know that when we're talking about immigration decision-making, um, refugee processing, these types of decisions are already extremely opaque and discretionary when just a human officer is making a decision, right? You can have the exact same set of evidence in front of two different officers and they can make two completely different determinations based on the data that's in front of them. Now imagine that we are starting to collect more and more data, putting them in these databases that are potentially being used to automate or augment human decision making. It becomes very, very complicated to parse out why particular decisions are made and why they might be discriminatory. Because again, we know that the immigration system and border regimes generally exacerbate systemic racism, vast power differentials, and really, really problematic decisions. So the more large databases that we have, the more interoperable they are, the more kind of data sharing that happens also without appropriate conversations around data protection and different types of safeguards, we really are creating a whole vast array of potential rights abuses, both from a fundamental rights perspective but also from an administrative perspective, because it gets really complicated to challenge something when we are increasing relying on large storages of data, which are then used, for example, for automated decision making in this context. So again, the, 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 the fact that we're talking about immigration decision making, refugee processing, two areas that are already opaque, already discretionary, it's very, very worrisome that this turn towards datafication, as, as some people have called it, or techno-solutionism, and the creation of these large databases is really, really concerning. But again, the appetite is there, and, and we are going to be seeing more of this in the years to come. 
Thank you. We've got some questions coming in from our audience. Um, Christina is asking about the implications of the deployment of AI tools at the different stages of asylum procedures in refugee status identification. Uh, Alina, perhaps you could mention that as well within the context of these large-scale databases. Sure. <clears throat> so, uh, as uh, as has been mentioned, what we see is the increasing use of different technologies in different procedures. And so, for example, in the German context, um, there is the use of software to analyze whether a person um, who has applied for asylum uh, to analyze their dialect. So, if they claim to be from a particular region of a country, uh, there's this there's a there's a software that can be used to analyze whether uh, their dialect actually matches uh, the alleged uh, region. Um, and this maybe sounds uh, like a great way to make uh, perhaps a, a, a difficult uh, decision more objective. Um, but I think there are a number of ways in which we really need to think carefully uh, and maybe critically about this type of use of technology. Uh, first of all, um, the evidence is that this type of technology is not entirely reliable. Um, and so we are actually not entirely sure how effective that assessment is. But at the same time, at the bottom of this type of systematic assessment of dialect is a profound skepticism about the credibility of the person in front of us. And so I think, again, it reinforces this idea of people really mostly not being credible, mostly not being um, uh, kind of authentic or bringing bona fide claims. Um, and it introduces a systemization of an assessment that, that one has to worry how effective it is. Um, and, and also we don't know the extent to which, as Petra was saying, it gets very complicated. When this is one piece that's brought into a decision-making process, the fact that it seems objective from a machine, um, just as by human nature, we might be inclined to weigh it more heavily um, than we might otherwise do against a range of other factors that we're considering. So it might really have an outsized weight in that whole processing. So I think um, there are a variety of ways in which we really need to think carefully and critically uh, about how we're using technology in these different contexts. Uh, when we speak about the EU's IT migration systems, perhaps we'll come back to this in a moment. Um, this is an EU-level kind of information technology architecture that is profoundly complicated and connects up with member states' national level uh, migration systems. Um, and so it introduces a massive overlaying, um, well, uh, new layer of complex IT architecture on top of what already exists at the national level and brings together pieces related to asylum, pieces related to uh, criminal law, pieces related to visa applications, things that you would think, gosh, have nothing to do with each other. But as Petra was said, by making them interoperable, we then can refit the purpose for which uh, a particular piece of data was 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 obtained uh, to meet another purpose or cross-check data against uh, data, for example, in a criminal database. So again, the complexity of these systems is profound and the opportunity for them to be uh, generating errors is also something we need to bear in mind. And given their complexity and their opacity, how do we even account for those errors? How do we have accountability for their, those errors? Again, in contexts where there are enormous implications personally for the individuals involved. 
Well, to deal um, a little bit uh, specifically and technically with the AI Act, Article 83 creates this exemption. It lets the, uh, the Schengen information system off the hook for all the other checks and balances that we might want it to do. Um, Peter, what's your views on, on that and specifically that article? Well, my personal view is very simple. I'm honestly, in general, I'm against all kinds of exceptions. And I told you why, because in these exceptions, we see a lot of loopholes that can uh, be a subject of a really broad uh, interpretation. And we have seen that many national authorities take advantage of that kind of interpretation, not only in the least developed countries or in the countries where the level of democracy is low, but also in the, I would say, one of the most democratic countries as well. So basically, frankly speaking about uh, Article 83, I'm totally against. I, th I believe that this act should be valid for everybody. And it's not only about the loopholes, but what, what example you give to the European citizens. You cannot exclude European systems because you cannot, if you exclude them, uh, this will be additional mistrust in this system. And, and you know it, when we speak about the biometrics, we now have a EU centralized information system for borders and security, and they're increasingly incorporating biometrics technologies for the purpose of uh, verification, identification. Now we have uh, uh, fingerprint identification technology used in three different systems. She's uh, Eurodac and, uh, and this, and it will be uh, incorporated and implemented in uh, ECRIS and in uh, entry and exit systems. So I should, I believe that this AI Act should be valid for all uh, European systems. This is the only chance and the only way that we can uh, build trust among the European citizens. Alina, let me come back to you uh, on this specific act, Art Article, Article 83 of the AI Act. Um, what's your position in, in terms of, of, of its potential to remain in the final text, which of course we don't yet know? Well, I think first of all, its existence is striking. Um, in particular, as I was mentioning before, because uh, uses certain uses of AI in the migration and asylum context are explicitly recognized by the same act as high risk. Um, and yet the EU then promptly um, excludes, uh, <laughs> excludes uh, the application of the act to uses in the migration context of its own databases. So I think it's it's very striking. Um, it's not entirely surprising, unfortunately, um, because of course we saw that these interoperability regulations that we we're mentioning a moment ago, um, these regulations that came in in 2019 to create the interconnectedness among a variety of different migration databases. Um, well, those came into being barely a year after the GDPR. The EU's uh, effort to really set the gold standard on data protection. And lo and behold, we have these interoperability regulations that fly in the face of that. Uh, again, purportedly, well, explicitly uh, to address immigration, uh, irregular migration and, and serious crime. So again, I think we have this, this 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 striking, uh, shall we say, incoherence where we have a piece of legislation that really attempts to set a global standard again on on um, 
artificial intelligence and fundamental rights that then promptly exempts uh, some of the most concerning uses in the immigration context. So I think um, it's it, it shouldn't it, it shouldn't be in there. At the same time, we already know, as we were hearing a moment ago from, from Petar, that um, some of these systems already foresee precisely some of the problematic uses. And so in a sense, it would mean unwinding existing, <laughs> existing plans. Um, and uh, unwinding existing uh, 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 energy and uh, zeal to actually deploy technology even more, um, even more in the migration context. But of course, it's incoherent. And as we were hearing, it undermines the very kind of premise of, of the act itself. So I think it really has to be, it has to be removed, Article 85. Um, now, the, the likelihood of that, or, or part, pardon me, Article 83, um, the likelihood of that, I think, again, given the politicization of migration, given the, the, the tendency to view migration through the lens of security, um, to exceptionalize in all the negative ways, um, um, application of rights, um, uh, fundamental rights in the context of border management and immigration control, I think it will be a challenge to see that this article will will be removed. But I think it's it's incredibly important that um, that we work to see that it that it's removed from the act uh, to ensure the coherence uh, and to ensure that it really stands for what it says it does, and to really meaningfully start to 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 address the harms that we know already. Um, linked to the uses of technology in the context of migration um, policies, procedures, and, and, and practices. I think also it's worth saying that it's a little bit do as we say, not as we do, and would leave the EU open to charges of hypocrisy, something we saw very much uh, in parallel with the General Data Protection Regulation, where, for example, the US said, yes, but EU states also spy on their citizens, so uh, don't preach to us about what we can and can't do with data. I see, I see that coming down the line. I've also got a very interesting question in uh, from an audience member, Petra. It's broadening out a little bit beyond the AI Act, uh, asking what responsibility do social media companies have to combat or reinforce the sort of uh, fundamental rights and these regulations as they're coming up? Um, it's it's quite a it's an unusual take, but I'd be interested whether you've got a position on that. Thank you for that question. I think that's actually really excellent because it gets at something that we have not discussed much today on this panel, and that is the role of the private sector in all of this. Because absolutely, I mean, not only do we see this proliferation on part of let's say state actors to want to do social media monitoring using a lot of these social media companies you know, tapping into people's phones as they're on the move, trying to make all sorts of risk profiling as a result of online activity. But then when we actually break it down and look at the responsibility of private sector actors, that is such a huge puzzle piece in this whole conversation. Because for me, actually, this is something that as I try and understand this kind of growing political economy and the border industrial complex, as some people call it, with this proliferation of migration management technology globally, the private sector plays such an important piece because it's not only are we seeing this, this increasing over-reliance on the private sector when it comes to the development and deployment of technology, because oftentimes states are not able to themselves develop the technology that they want to use in-house. They need to use private sector actors to be able to do this. But of course, from a legal perspective, a private sector actor has very different responsibilities to an individual or a community that's harmed and affected by technology. 
And what happens often is what some people call responsibility laundering, where a public sector actor like a state or a government department can say, well, you know what, actually this rights infringement is not really under our purview because it's uh, as a result of the private sector actor that we're working with. And the private sector actor can say, well, it's not really our problem either because we just developed this tool and then we passed it off to the state. And it creates this vacuum where individuals and communities really can fall through the cracks. But, you know, I think it's also about broader questions, though. It's about whose priorities matter when we start developing and deploying technologies in this high risk space. You know, why are we developing AI lie detectors to be tested out on refugees and people crossing borders? Why aren't we using AI to root out racist border guards? There's a clear differential in terms of why certain innovations get pushed through and the private sector bottom line, as in making lots of money in big tech and big migration tech, that's very, very clearly a motivating factor why this ecosystem is allowed to proliferate the way it does. So I think it's a really excellent question because it highlights yet another important actor in this whole milieu that we really need to keep a close eye on, both in terms of the responsibility, but also the priority setting that we are seeing. Well, staying with this question of the private sector, another question from our audience is asking, do you think there might be other levers against private firms selling border security technologies beyond the AI regulation um, as currently defined in the AI Act? Uh, Petar, do you see any other, at EU level, ways in, in which we might mitigate some of these harms? I, uh, did you ask Peter or Petra? <laughs> Peter. Hi, ask Peter. Oh, <laughs> Peter. Okay, okay, okay. Now, uh, in order to mitigate, we should identify the problems. And I think that one of the biggest problems that we are having here is uh, the future proof of this uh, piece of legislation. Because it will, it will take years before this uh, legislation entering into force. First of all, you know that the legislation process is very lengthy in the European Parliament. Then after adoption, it needs two or three years to take time. Because Alina was speaking something about the high risk. And in my opinion, we should, uh, you, we should make this legislation future-proof because it will enter into force in 2026 and nobody knows what the situation in four years time uh, would be. So in my opinion, we should look for ways to put more flexibility in, term, in terms of adapting these uh, risk categories. Because Alina mentioned something about the high risk. And something that we consider today a uh, low risk usage of AI can review to be actually high risk or even unacceptable in a couple of years. And I think that uh, we should really pay attention on that because we need to have a flexible possibility for, uh, for adaptation. And according to the design and the proposal of the Commission, we don't have such now because uh, the Commission suggested using delegated tax to amend Annex 3, but only with these eight uh, headings defining possible areas. So, and maybe another, another issue that we, maybe we missed, uh, this is a huge challenge also for me, how to ensure that people have the right to complain if they their rights are being breached because we are talking about the breaching of human rights here. The commission proposal spoke a lot about the providers, about developers uh, of AI system and new users of AI system, but does not mention the subject of AI system. Those like uh, me, like uh, you, who might be profiled by AI, whose data will be examined by the AI. So I think that these are also issues that should be raised and should be uh, 
uh, should find a proper decision. Thank you. Marta Caballero has, uh, has written in to ask, do you think that once these systems are deployed, they acquire a momentum of their own, creating the need for yet more technology? Um, I'm, I'm going to take a guess that probably all of you on the panel do see that as, as an inherent problem. Um, Anna, another audience member, is also asking, does the EU digital IT investment in Africa feed into this tech-focused vision of Fortress Europe? And how can this approach be challenged in European institutions? Um, Alina, let me put that one to you um, to talk about the, the sort of, if you like, the export of these ideas or export of this technocratic solution. So many of you uh, may well know that the EU's efforts to um, to deter irregular migration or to deter migrants from, from leaving certain countries and entering the EU um, also involves uh, working with third countries. So um, it's not only about developing policies uh, concerning EU borders directly and, and interior to the EU, but it's also about this this notion of externalization, so really working with third countries. So it is the case that, of course, in this context, that um, discussions about and, um, and, and explorations of the use of technology to, again, augment um, uh, these types of initiatives or these types of uh, agreements is, is definitely, uh, definitely a reality. Um, and so I think that's that's something we also have to bear in mind. So, um, and when we're speaking, as as we've heard before, about asymmetries uh, of power, we also have to bear in mind that that is also the case when the EU is dealing bilaterally with some of the countries that we're um, uh, that, that that these third countries. Um, it's a case of asymmetries uh, in terms of their ability to actually push back, but there are also concerns about some of these uh, third countries not necessarily themselves being very um, respectful of human rights. And so the ways in which then technology might be used uh, in those contexts might be also deeply problematic. Um, and so I think there, when, when we layer on this international dimension, uh, this externalization dimension, we really do see the complexities and the concerns about um, the EU's um, uh, the EU's enthusiasm about using technological solutions as a way to augment uh, the ways in which uh, we try to discourage people, deter people, monitor people, surveil people, and so on and so forth. Um, so in terms of what we can do about that, I think, I think part of the problem is that um, a, a lot of this, again, is very intransparent. Um, and we really need to see what we what we need to press as, as much as we can for greater transparency in terms of the types of uh, discussions that are underway. I think Petra is exactly right to use the term ecosystem. We have a number of different actors who are involved in in this whole conversation and this whole deployment around technology in the migration context. We have governments we at the national level uh, in the in Europe we have the EU level actors we have private sector actors um, and of course we have affected uh, communities and individuals um, 
And I think it's there's a lot of lack of transparency about how decisions are made, about the nature of the negotiations that are that are underway, about how agreements are made. Um, that makes it very, very difficult then to speak in terms of accountability. So I think that's that's one thing. And the other thing is really to to really start to to be much more um, to really visibilize um, the fact that, uh, that, that 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 this is happening. Um, and that all of this is deeply harmful and part of this broader infrastructure um, that is really uh, that is really, as we were speaking about momentum, uh, is is really going to move. The likelihood is it's going to move in 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 a, in a direction towards more deployment. So I think all of us need to be mobilizing around these issues, and uh, um, and it really needs multiple actors to really be calling for greater transparency and accountability. Well, I've called them technological solutions for want of a better phrase, but perhaps I should be saying uh, processes because, of course, solutions presupposes a problem and possibly underlines some of the issues we're having when discussing um, migration. Um, a final question, we're, we're on a wrap-up point, and I do want to just take stock and take note of the current situation with regard to the Ukraine influx, as it were. Um, and we are seeing an unprecedented waving of um, the, the controls that we would normally see in place uh, at the border there. I'm interested to know from your point of view, do you think that this may have a knock-on effect, that we may see member states saying, well, actually, maybe some of these controls that we put in place were not necessary, that they were too extreme, um, since it seems that Europe is more than capable of coping with a huge refugee crisis like we see in the Ukraine when there's enough public will behind it. Petra, I'd like your thoughts, uh, just a couple of minutes as we wrap up on, on what that might be the fallout from this current situation. Thank you, Jennifer, and I, I will keep it brief, but this, this question actually means a lot because I was just up until a few days ago at the Ukrainian border doing some evidence collection and, and just trying to see what the situation is like. And, and you're absolutely right. I mean, I think it the situation highlights how it is very possible for Europe to really lean into the deep solidarity that it is capable of and, and to, to open borders and to allow people fleeing um, the, the situation and the occupation towards safety and, and to exercise their internationally protected right to asylum. But once again, it also highlights just how differently borders are experienced depending on your skin color and your place of origin. Because if we take Poland as a direct example, we've seen an amazing outpouring of kindness, solidarity, resources, and open door policy, so to speak, at the Ukrainian-Polish border. And yet just a few hours north of that, at the Belarusian border, we continue to have people trapped in a corridor where they're not able to cross into European territory and claim asylum. So again, borders are always differentially experienced. And the concern, I think, is that technology exacerbates these power differentials. It remains to be seen what Europe decides to do moving forward, given the current situation. And I'm trying to be hopeful <laughs> to see whether this will perhaps be a bit of a, a change in the discourse around migration, around open borders, around the harm that, that sharp border technologies are, are perpetrating on people and communities. But Given the ongoing um, differential experiences and, and flat out racism and discrimination that is being experienced, even in this situation um, coming out of Ukraine, I am not as hopeful as, as I would like to be. So I think 
the coming weeks and months are going to be quite telling. And it does map on to in interesting ways, given how the AI Act is also being developed. So we'll see if there's opportunities to push it further and introduce some more conversations around humanity, dignity, and again, protecting people's fundamental rights as it comes to asylum and, and also just freedom of movement, generally speaking. Thank you. Peter, there's very often a, a, a mismatch between the member states at the council level and what the European Parliament wants to do. It's not, it's not exclusive to the AI Act by any means. But as I've mentioned the Ukraine, we are seeing a very different shift in the viewpoint of, of certain member states, of certain governments in this opening up and solidarity. Do you think it's any chance of that having a knock-on effect to the inevitable negotiations between the Parliament and the Council further down the line? Or do you think those traditional disagreements will still remain? You mean the AI Act? Yes. The, 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 the kickoff effect from Ukraine to the AI Act? Yeah. <laughs> in, the, in the migration board? I wouldn't say that. I mean, yes, the situation that we are having in, uh, having in Ukraine is kind of unique because it shows the European solidarity. But when we speak about the European solidarity, we should speak also about the European hypocrisy. Because when we have certain type of migrants or refugees, some of them, we give the keys to our own houses like we have now with the Ukrainians. But at the same time, some other with different colors or different religion, we keep them away from the European borders. And we scare them with all kinds of uh, border control, so on and so forth. And so I think that, that this crisis in Ukraine might bring us to a to a necessity to change the, and it is a possibility to change the, the, the politics, the, the migration politics, because it's not being solidar so far. Now it gives us a chance to, to show not only with the Ukrainians, but in general, those who really flee from war, they should be treated equally. So from that perspective, I uh, assume and I expect a bit more openness, but as to the AI Act, I'm not really sure that it will directly affect the, the, the process, the processing the, uh, and the border control. This is just a technical solution, I would say. This is not uh, the... And this technical solution is uh, done for purpose. But I think that this is the right moment to, to change the migration policy of the European Union. Alina, um, am, I, am I making it too much of a stretch to hope that the, the current situation might have a silver lining? I, I would just echo what others have said, that um, I think in the midst of this moment uh, of solidarity, we, we just see an extraordinary contrast uh, in what's happening in terms of responses to, to, to others in situations of need. So I think, like others, my, my hopefulness um, is a little bit mitigated by... by um, by the reality of those discrepancies and inconsistencies. Um, that being said, I think it is for us to use the opening to really see what the opportunities are for a shift in the conversation about migration. I think the problem too often is that people work with some an, an idea about what a good migrant is, the right kind of migrant, and of course, the, the, the most, shall we say, quote unquote, deserving migrant 
um, is often the one that is kind of the innocent migrant fleeing uh, force, fleeing violence. Um, and, and other types of migration uh, or other types of migrants are much more easily vilified. And I think even in the context of the Ukraine situation right now, um, I think, again, we, we need to see because over time, as the situation maybe changes and as some people, some Ukrainians maybe remain in the EU, um, the EU itself is predicting that perhaps as many as half Ukrainians may not apply for temporary protective status. And so over time, um, people may remain, the situation may change, um, and they become undocumented or perhaps they settle. Um, and, and, and do attitudes then change? Um, and so I think there, there is, there's a sense in which there is an opportunity maybe for us to, to really try to, to shift a conversation about how we understand migration, but we all need to really query and question and critique our ideas about the good migrant, um, the, the kind of deserving migrant, um, and the ways in which uh, oh, that notion is often um, idealized and extremely exclusive, so that those who don't fall into those boxes at a moment in time, uh, as we heard, are at the sharp end of our immigration policy. So I do hope that this can be a moment to, to shift the dialogue and to have a much more nuanced discussion about mobility, about movement, um, and about our attitudes about those who want to come to Europe for whatever the reason is. Well, we're just about to wrap up, so I'm going to be very strict and give you each one minute to express that hope. Alina, it, it, for the AI Act, uh, what do you want to see from the policymakers? Alina, I will let you go first in, in one minute, if you can. All right. So I think, again, for me, the three the three critical things maybe to take away in terms of the AI Act in the context of our discussion today on migration. The first thing is simple. Let's remove the exemption for EU migration databases. It's, as you said yourself, Jennifer, I think it's unfortunately just blatantly hypocritical and we need to do better. So let's just remove that exemption. Number two is let's make it meaningful to designate something as high risk. Let's make it not only about fixing the quality of data, technological fixes, but let's actually make it meaningful in terms of an assessment of impact and opportunities to mitigate, limit, or even stop certain types of uses that are harmful. And finally, let's make it possible for people to actually have recourse where their violations of their rights occur in the context of the deployment of AI um, in the migration context or, or another context. Um, let's make it possible for individuals to, to have rights under the Act to seek uh, accountability. Peter, your one minute takeaway, please. I have nothing more to add. I would just like to thank you for giving us this opportunity. And of course, like I said, it will be very important where we will put that line. Uh, because, like I said in the very beginning, our main goal is to to make sure that all the fundamental rights are protected. And this AI is only to serve to, to the people, to the European citizens. So uh, without saying that we should ban all the technologies and uh, innovation, just they should step back and to pay attention to the people and to their fundamental rights. And I hope that in the end we will be able to find this thin balance between the innovation on one hand and, of course, the, the fundamental rights and freedoms and of the people. Thank you.
Um, Petra, you have the tough job of going last and not trying to repeat everything that's already been said. Thank you. You know, I think at the end of the day, it's not really about technology. It's about power and it's about participation and who gets to ask the tough questions that need to be asked. Because at the end of the day, right, it's about who gets to participate in conversations around what counts as technology and innovation and which communities become the testing grounds on which technology is, is kind of experimented on. So really what I would like to leave you with is just the importance of centering the lived experiences of people who are at the sharp edges of this technological development to include their experiences, include their voices and invite them to forums like this as well to have these kind of discussions. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you all three of you for this fascinating discussion and for the audience for their insightful questions.